If you would, go ahead and turn to our passage, Ephesians chapter 5. We will pick up where we left off last as we do. I want to uh, share something special with you. As you, many of you know, we lost a good friend and faithful follower of Jesus Christ, Yvonne Sinclair, on Wednesday and had the privilege of uh, being a part of her funeral service yesterday. <clears throat> One of the things that was given to me as I spoke to the family were her two most recent Bibles that she had read studied. So I thought I'd show you what Ephesians 5 looks like in her first Bible. Go ahead. Keep going. There it is. That's her first Bible. <clears throat> it was falling apart. There was so much that was in there. She went to her second Bible. That's number two. This is a woman who feasted on the Word of God and loved the Lord and spent time in His Word, and she lived a full life because of it. Mark and Bonnie went to visit her not too long ago, and at the time she had her Bible in her lap and said, you know, I just haven't read Hebrews enough. I feel like I need to be, be able to read, he- I need to read Hebrews more. Show them what Hebrews looks like. Here's Hebrews. That that's, hadn't been read very much, Hebrews. <laughs> So what I wanted to do is just share that with you as an encouragement of a woman who lived faithfully with God, had a full life because of it, and I hope that it challenges us as we see that to have that same heart of being in His Word and just loving it as she did so faithfully. So Ephesians chapter 5, let's look at that passage together. We've already kind of talked about it as we looked at that picture of marriage that is presented um, according to that Jewish custom. But let me highlight three of the, the, the important attributes that I see in the love of Christ for us as his bride. The first in that passage, verses 25 through 27, is the fact that his love for us is unconditional. It's not forced. His, his sacrifice was, was willing. It says in verse 25 that he gave himself up for us, for his bride. The church That makes me think of John chapter 10 where Jesus speaking talks about how he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. The point here that's important for us to understand is that nobody made him do what he did. He willingly chose to sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And he didn't do it because we somehow earned his affection. He didn't die because we were lovely. In fact, that passage in Romans says that even while we were yet sinners, that's not pretty. There's a lot of disruption and decay. But yet, it says, even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die because we were lovely. He died in order to make us lovely. It says in verse 26 that he might sanctify her, the bride. That he might present her in in all her glory without spot and wrinkle. His love was unconditional. We also see in this passage that his love was unselfish. His ultimate desire, according to verse 27, is to present us holy and blameless before God the Father. He sees us not as who we are, but who we will be when we stand before the throne. His love is unconditional. His love is unselfish. His love is unlimited. I think probably the best passage that explains that is Romans 8, chapter 
chapter 8, verse 38, that, that Paul, speaking of this love, says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love is unconditional. His love is unselfish. His love is unlimited. He has chosen us. He has sanctified us. He receives us. From start to finish, the work of salvation is a work of Christ's love. And with that example as the backdrop, Paul then turns to the husbands. And look what he says beginning in verse 28. He says, So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever has hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. See, just as, as Christ didn't love us simply because we earned his favor, earned his affection, so too husbands should love their wives, not because they earn their love or affection either. See, a spirit-filled husband is not governed by his emotions. You remember we talked about that last week. The, the love of a spirit-filled husband is one of a, a willful decision, a, a willingness to lay down his life for the sake of his bride. Even when she may seem to be unloving or undeserving, it doesn't matter. Our love is unconditional. Because we base our love not on an emotion but on a promise, a promise of unconditional love. And also, like Christ, the, the goal of the husband should be to seek the highest good for his wife. See, a spirit-filled husband looks not at what his wife is, but what she will be. And he accepts the, the privilege and the responsibility to help her become that woman that God created her to be. His heart's desire is to present his bride before his heavenly father pure and undefiled cared for nurtured cherished to the very end that's the promise that we make right to love to the very end in sickness and in health for better for worse it doesn't matter what life brings to us our commitment and our promise is unconditional. See, I believe that, that Paul is making this point in this comparison of what we see in the example of Christ and what husbands are called to follow. And then he uses an interesting uh, comparison there. He says, love your wives as your own bodies. <laughs> now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I read that and I think, okay, now, how do I make that connection? <laughs> How do I compare the, the self-sacrificing love of Christ to my desire to care for and nurture my own body? That, that actually sounds a little selfish at first glance. But I think Paul understands where our heart naturally gravitates. We men are list makers. <laughs> and so we have this list of things that we start, we're supposed to do, and we perform them out of duty without ever engaging our heart. And so Paul says that's not the way it works. 
Last week I gave you an example of a target, right? And I had an arrow stuck in there already. There was this idea that someone had, wouldn't it be cool if we put Brian up there in the sound booth and you start talking about this and then on your cue he shoots an arrow into that target from up there. (laughs) This sounds like a good idea actually, right? But what would have happened if we would have done something like that? Probably most of us would have cowered in fear as that arrow shoots over the top of our head. I actually thought about putting an apple on somebody's head and, you know, holding the bow up here. Same thing. We would have naturally protected ourselves from what was perceived to be a danger, which would have definitely been the case if that bow and arrow was in my hands, right? And if we're in, you've probably been in a place before where you're just walking along, minding your own business, and you hear a loud clap, a noise. What do you do? You stop, you cover yourself, and typically you move away instinctively from wherever that noise came from. It's called a fight or flight response. It is instinctive within our bodies. When we perceive, it didn't even have to be real, when we perceive a danger or a threat, our natural instinct is that a body kicks in and there's a cascade of events that happens without you ever thinking about a single one. For example, your body no longer feels like the digestive system is necessary, so it shuts it down because it wants all the energy and and effort to go into your heart that's going to pound like a racehorse, right? That heart is pumping blood into your bodies, into your, into your leg, into your arms, so that you can either run or fight. But one of the two is going to happen. So everything within your body is getting you prepared for that moment. Hundreds of, of different things happening as these chemicals course through your body and you don't think about a single one. It's instinctive. See, Paul is looking at this and all the ways that the body naturally cares for itself. And he says, husbands, loving your wives should just be as natural and and instinctive as the way you nurture and protect yourself. And here's why. Your wife is not separate from you. She is a part of you. She is a part of you. That's why when you look at that passage in Mark chapter 10 verse 8 it it talks about that Genesis passage that the two shall become one flesh. And he says, you are no longer two but one. No longer two but one. Just as the church as an extension of Christ, the wife is an extension of her husband. Just as Christ so naturally nourishes and cares for us, we as husbands should care for our wives. We should engage our hearts into that love as we see exemplified in the love of Christ. Paul goes on to explain how these qualities for both husbands and wives are the inevitable outcome when we willingly allow the Spirit to do His work in our heart. Look at verse 31. It says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. What Paul is describing is what naturally happens when a 
two spirit-filled people allow God to direct their lives as he designed originally. That's what it looks like to have a life-transforming love. You see, the, the thing that I want us to really capture and understand this morning is that when we, being filled with the Spirit, follow the design and course that Christ has laid out for us, that transforming love changes us. It sanctifies us. It's an inevitable outcome when we follow His design. It shapes us into the image of Christ so that we not only exhibit His character, but we demonstrate His love in our relationship as husband and wife. The question that we need to ask and answer as we walk through and consider this is is how do we help each other as a husband and a wife move in such a way that we are used by God to shape one another to become more and more like that image of Christ and avoid the potential of moving in the opposite direction. How do I allow God to use me in a way that helps shape my husband or my wife closer to the image of Christ? I think as we we consider that, it it begins with, with a willingness to be authentic in your relationship with one another. You see, marriage brings two people in closer contact with one another than any other relationship does. And and we're able to to hide our flaws from other people pretty easily. Justin Biggs and I were talking about this and I'm not picking on him, but but Justin's a salesman, right? And salesmen are good at hiding flaws. They present that good picture so that you're willing to buy into whatever it is they're selling you. And I'm sure Justin's really good at that. But you know what? When Justin goes home, there's somebody he's not going to be able to sell anything to because she knows him. And that's his wife. And in that relationship, as it is for all of us, our flaws are exposed. Some of us are fearful. And in our marriage relationship, our spouse sees that we are easily, we easily become anxious. Some of us are proud, and they see that we are often opinionated and sometimes selfish. Sometimes we can be abrasive and harsh, and it may cause people to respect us, but we may be hard people to love. Some of us are perfectionists, and so we're judgmental and critical by nature. Others are impatient and irritable can be known to hold grudges. We all have our flaws. Did I leave anybody out? We all have things that just are a part of us, our imperfections. And in in our marriages, those things are exposed. They can be masked in other relationships, but they are often revealed and magnified in our marriages. And the reason is, is that the person most impacted by those flaws is who? Your spouse. That's why Tim Keller uses this illustration of a, of a bridge that when you look at it at face value, it looks to be in good shape. It is extending over a body of water and, and as, as you examine it by the naked eye, it looks like it's in great condition. 
until you drive a 10-ton mat truck over it, then all of a sudden those hairline fractures that you couldn't see are now exposed because they open up. Now, that truck did not cause those problems. It revealed them. Well, marriage is the same way. We all have these hidden imperfections and flaws, but marriage often is the tool that exposes them. It doesn't cause those issues. It reveals them. Because we all have them. And that, that revealing is not a bad thing. Because counselors often say that the only flaws that can enslave us are the ones that we're blind to. Marriage has the power to reveal our true selves. However realistic and unflattering that picture may be. That's just part of the design of marriage. So don't go blaming your spouse for these problems that are exposed in your marriage relationship. She didn't cause them. He didn't cause them. The marriage has revealed what has always existed. And now you have the opportunity to do something about it. Because we're all a work in progress. And marriage is that catalyst that that takes these two chemicals and and puts them together so that there's a reaction that creates a new uh, unknown compound. And that's what it's like in a marriage relationship as a husband and wife come together and God makes something new out of their lives. But here's the problem. In in our self-centered culture, We enter into the marriage relationship, most all of us every time, completely infatuated with this person who would be our bride or our groom. In fact, we have decided that we want to marry them because they are, in fact, the perfect person, right? They have no flaws. This is it. We have found them. And then we realize only after sometimes a few weeks, a few months, a few years of marriage, they're not as quite as perfect as we thought they were. In fact, you wake up one morning and they've got bad breath just like you do. Right? And here's where a lot of times people in the marriage relationship will look at the other person completely blind to their own faults and say to themselves, wait a second, I didn't sign up for this. This is not the person that I thought I married. And so they decide for themselves that they need to find something better. Listen to me closely. The something better is the wife or the husband you already have. The something better is the wife or the husband you already have. Because there is no perfect spouse. Okay, let's just get that out on the table. There is no perfect spouse. Only a spouse, a husband or a wife who is being perfected. See, if you miss that point, you end up in this cycle of divorce and remarriage where you enter into these relationships with that same infatuation telling yourself, this is it, you you found the perfect person. Only to enter into the next stage of disillusionment where, wait a second, how did I miss that one? And then you convince yourself to enter into that next stage of rejection where you've decided you're just not in love anymore. And so you move on and you go through the cycle with the next person over and over again. So here's a very good question to keep that tendency 
in check. I want you to ask yourself, am I more concerned with the flaws in my spouse or do I see the beauty of what they could be and understand the part that I play in helping them be that person? Am I more concerned about the flaws in my husband or in my wife? Or do I see what they could be and help them become that person? There's a story of Michelangelo that we are familiar with where he was asked how he created that beautiful, beautiful sculpture of David, right? Because he had a special chunk of marble quarried for him and brought to him and he answered that question by saying, well, all I did is I looked at that chunk of marble and I just chipped away the parts that weren't David until he was finally seen. So the question I have for you, do you look at your spouse as a chunk of marble or a beautiful statue yet to be created? And and do you see yourself playing a part to help them become that person that they've been designed to be? See, there's a miraculous transformation that occurs when a spirit-filled husband and a spirit-filled wife in reverence to the example of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit sacrificially love one another. See, no other relationship has the power to affirm you and even to help heal you of some of the hurts and wounds in your life. We all know, I hope from experience, that, that the world could tell you that you're a failure, that you're a disappointment, that you're unattractive. And then you can hear from your spouse that you're special, that you're important, that you're of great value. And that's what you'll listen to. And the reason is, is because they know you best. (laughs) I want you to take this in the right way because I appreciate your encouragement to me. But let me give you an example. Sometimes after church, Roger used to call this the glorification of the worm. When after a sermon, somebody will come up and say, boy, that's a really good sermon, Pastor. I appreciate that, and, and I'm grateful for that. But a lot of times, somebody will come up who's new and who doesn't know me, and they don't really understand maybe what went into preparing that sermon or what's been on my heart or the life experiences that, that brought some of those things to mind. And, and I appreciate what they say, but I tell you what means the most to me. is when my bride speaks words of affirmation. Because she knows me. She knows what I struggled through. She knows how my heart breaks. She knows that I'm giving my life away. And it means something. See, our marriage is intended to be a mirror of God's love. It's the one place where we should feel safe and secure in who we are, but always challenged to become something better, something more beautiful. With this in mind, let let me take that picture of what we've talked about And let me urge you to make some commitments this morning. And I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to ask you sincerely to commit to these three things. The first one is this. Commit yourself to focusing on what your spouse could be 
and not where they fall short. Focus your attention. Commit yourself to focus your attention on what your spouse could be and not what they are not. And this applies to all kinds of relationships. Students, this applies to your relationship with your parents and parents to your kids. <laughs> focus on not what they are not, but on what they could be, what you want them to become, what you appreciate about them. Make a point to identify and to speak only about those things that you admire, that, that you appreciate about your spouse. I know this is Lent as people get prepared for for Easter, and a lot of times people give up things during Lent. Well, let me encourage you to put on your list giving up that critical spirit. That heart that always identifies the flaws instead of admiring and appreciating the strengths. Set your minds on things that are good and right and true. And then tell them with heartfelt sincerity to the ones that you love. Affirm them in ways that reflect the character of Christ. It reminds me, and I would encourage you to write this passage down. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That is your list. Those are the things that you're going to look for in the life of the one that you love. And then speak those things to them. The second commitment is this. Be a student of their heart. Be a student of their heart. There's all kinds of talk about this aspect of, of love languages and, and knowing uh, the ways to express love to, to one another. Uh, the other illustration that I've heard before is being able to, to speak on the fa- same frequency of the one that you love and care for because a lot of times we're sending messages but it's not dialed into the frequency in which they listen and they're not getting that message, right? And so we need to be a student of their hearts so that we understand the ways in which they best receive the love that you intend to express to them. And here's the most common mistake that we make is we wrongly assume, because it's rarely the case, that they receive love in the same way you do. Because most often it's different. And so be a student of their heart so that you understand the ways in which they receive love so that you can tune in to that signal and send it in that way. There was a trip that Terry and I took several years ago now. Remember it because we went to Red River, New Mexico, and there was a book that was given to us, or I picked up, I don't remember, called Fall in Love, Stay in Love by William Harley. He's written several books on marriage, and within that book was what he calls an emotional needs questionnaire. You can actually go online to get that, and I would encourage you to do so because that was real helpful for us, especially early in marriage, to just interact with each other about what those needs are. And we'd done that through premarital counseling. And in fact, I think we might have done something very similar. But this was several years later. And here was the aha moment for me as as the hardwired husband. (laughs) The list changed. (laughs) That's not fair. I had the list. I needed to stick to the list. But the list changed. But that was a significant moment for me to realize that I can't get a list and then stick to it for the rest of my life, assuming that that's the way she's always going to receive my love. I've got to be a student of her heart so that in those seasons, I adjust 
to express it in ways that she receives it. And I have to know her and be a student of her heart to understand what that looks like. I'll tell you the passage that I think of as I think about the example of Christ is what you have in in John chapter 1, verse 14, when it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the reason that's significant, because you'll remember in the Old Testament when Moses was faced with that burning bush and he saw the glory of God, what did he do? He had to turn away, didn't he? He couldn't look upon it. It was something that he couldn't see, couldn't understand. It was so much greater and bigger than he was. But in the incarnation of the Son, Jesus Christ, we can see, we can touch, we can hear, we can behold the love of God in a way that we understand. That's how He loves us. And as we look at that example, that's how we should love one another. Understanding the ways in which we can express it so that they can receive it and understand it and feel the heart's desire that we have for them. Finally, the third commitment that I would like for you to make is to be rich in grace. Be rich in grace. Lavish it upon your spouse. Just as we read in that passage in Ephesians that Christ has lavished His grace on us. I think maybe the most important attribute that we need to have in a marriage relationship is the willingness to forgive. Because when two people live this close with one another, this raw, this unexposed, or this exposed, we're going to hurt each other. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Uh, One of the warnings that I want to give you here, thinking back to that idea of of love language, is, is as you learn the ways that your spouse receives love or the person that you're caring for receives love, make sure you don't use that as a weapon. So that when you're angry, you take what you used to give them and you withhold it from them. Because that's the way you're going to hurt them. Listen to me, that hurt goes deep. Do not make that mistake. Because I've seen marriages that don't recover from that. So love them in a way that they receive love. Be a student of their heart. But be willing to forgive when you make mistakes. If you look at Scripture, when you talk about this idea of forgiveness, Jesus gives a couple of parables. In one of them, he talks about one who has been offended, and he says that they should take the initiative to go seek forgiveness. And the other one, he talks to the offender and says they should be the one who takes the initiative. His point is, it doesn't matter. If the relationship is important to you, and I pray to God that it is, then you take the initiative to seek forgiveness when there are things that you have done that are wrong that are hurtful, whether you intended to or not. Be humble. Be willing to seek forgiveness. Never tell yourself, well, I would never do that, because you're wrong. You would, and worse, because when our flesh is allowed to rule, we do amazingly wicked things. But only by the grace of God, by being filled with the Spirit, can we love as God intended us to. So give forgiveness to one another. The passage that I think of here that I would encourage you to keep in mind as you make this commitment is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. It says, And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
So I'll tell you, as I've mentioned before, you can stop forgiving your spouse. You can limit your love for them when you see that limit exemplified in the life of Christ for you. And because there is no limit, you will never be able to get to that place. Marriage has the power to change us, to sanctify us, to, begin, to, to help us be the, the man and the woman that God has created us to be. And it happens inevitably as a spirit-filled man and a spirit-filled woman in reverence to the example of Christ and his headship in their relationship takes place. There is a transformation because of that divine love. And we only experience something different than that when we decide to go our own way. Otherwise, the blessing is unavoidable in the marriage relationship that God has designed for that purpose, which is why when we experience it, the only right response is to give glory to the one who created it in the first place, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the beautiful example of that marriage relationship that we have with you and what you did to initiate that, how you chose us, how you lavished your gift of grace upon us through the sacrifice of your son on the cross and the forgiveness of our sins, how the word of your commitment was spoken through the gospel of our salvation. And in faith, when we responded, you gave to us that pledge of the Holy Spirit, the promise of an inheritance yet to come. And that we live in that relationship with you now, anticipating the fullness of it, one day yet future, when we stand with you at that marriage supper of the Lamb. When the relationship that we long for is experienced in its fullness for all eternity. Father, until then, I pray that we live in relationship with one another, especially in that relationship as husbands and wives, being filled with your Spirit so that we can be sanctified to become the man and the woman that you have designed us to be, closer and closer reflecting the image of Jesus Christ, his character, his love. Help us to be faithful to these commitments that we have made together this morning as we continue throughout the week. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.